Hi, Israel Story listeners. It's Mishi. One of the very first decisions we made here at Israel Story, long before we had a name, a single story idea, or even for that matter, a recording device, was that the show was going to be apolitical. And more or less ever since we made that decision, 12 years ago, we've been trying to understand what exactly that means. Certain aspects of being apolitical have always been straightforward and easy. There have been seven election cycles since the show began, and not only have we never endorsed a party or a candidate, I think we've barely even mentioned the fact that elections were taking place. Other parts of being apolitical, however, have been murkier. We've asked, and never quite found clear answers, to many pertinent questions. For instance, do we avoid stories that relate to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict altogether? Or, if we don't, how do we choose which stories to tell? Do we tell stories of people who live beyond the Green Line? And if so, does that include only Jewish settlers, or also Palestinians? And what terminology should we use? West Bank? Judea and Samaria? Occupation? Palestine, Palestinian Authority, Israeli Arabs, Palestinian citizens of Israel? Widening the lens just a bit, the very notion of being apolitical is complicated. See, somehow in the Israeli context, political really means one thing and one thing only. What you think about the conflict. But as many smart people have said for centuries, at the end of the day, everything is political. Airing a story about the women of the wall, or a trans rabbi, about the Haredi response to COVID, or a women's volleyball team in Nazareth, about the history of pork consumption in Israel, or the breakup of a kibbutz, these are all political statements in one way or another. So the 11 seasons of our show have been a continuous balancing act. A delicate dance, with endless internal debates, countless compromises, and an array of ad hoc solutions. Over the years, we haven't always succeeded. A couple of times we lost funding as a result of a story that went too far in one direction or another. And what's even worse, here and there we alienated listeners who felt that their point of view wasn't being heard. But we do try, as best we can, to be aware of our biases, and to balance them, to represent a wide variety of voices and opinions and places, and to hire an increasingly diverse staff of producers. We keep detailed spreadsheets of who is, and also who isn't, getting airtime on the show. It's never going to be perfect, but each year we ask you whether you think we have a political bend. And survey after survey, Somewhere between 91 and 94% of you say that you think we're an honest broker. What makes me even happier is that the remaining 6 to 9%, those who think we do have a bias, are more or less split between those who are convinced that our show is left-leaning and those who are sure it's right-leaning. Now, being apolitical is not a goal in and of itself, at least not for me. As you can well imagine, I, and each one of the team members here at Israel Story, 
have political opinions, even strong and outspoken ones. We care deeply about this country of ours, which is probably why we're drawn to create the show in the first place. But the reason to adhere to this apolitical path is that it allows us to listen, to actually listen, to the stories of others, even those we disagree with. It allows us to put ourselves in someone else's shoes, and it helps us bring these stories to a wide and diverse audience. See, just as you're listening to these words right now, so are many, many other people in more than 190 countries around the world. And that group of listeners, it includes Jews and non-Jews, religious and secular and everything imaginable in between, socialists and capitalists, conservatives, moderates, and liberals, ardent Zionists, and supporters of BDS. Really, a bit of everything. And just think about that for a second. In our hyper-fragmented world, in which each ideology has its own media, its own narratives, and its own truth, getting such a diverse group of people to listen to the same stories about a polarizing place like Israel It's a minor miracle. The only way we can do that, the only way, is by sticking to our most fundamental tenet. That a person is a person is a person no matter what. And that we'll only learn and grow by listening to each other. And even that, of course, is sadly and increasingly a political statement. So why am I telling you all this? Well, because this spring Israel will be celebrating its 75th anniversary. And for a very long time we've been thinking about how best to mark that milestone. Our mission, from the start, was to expose listeners to the complexity of life here. To celebrate the richness and diversity of the local population. But it was never, and isn't now, to celebrate Israel. We don't work for the government and don't receive any governmental funding. We release tales that, at least we hope, explore the nuanced reality of Israeli society. And we leave it to each and every one of you to draw your own conclusions. Some will feel that the show strengthens their connection to Israel. Others, that it reminds them of its shortcomings. To Israel now, where government proposals to overhaul the legal system have sparked major protests. There are about 500,000 people in various different places, places like Haifa, Violence Tel Aviv, and anger Western may be on the brink of boiling over. But how serious is Israel's political crisis? This Yomat's Mot obviously comes at a critical moment. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? 
What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Hey listeners, it's Mishi. Last week we released our 50th wartime diary. This week is Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzmaut. And as a way of marking this milestone, and these dates, Yochai Meital and I will have a series of onstage conversations in New York and Cleveland. We'll discuss the process of creating wartime diaries, talk about some of the challenges we've encountered, the dilemmas we've had, the insights we've gained, So if you want to hear what covering the evolving story of this war has been like for us, we'd love to see you at one of our events. All the details are on our site, israelstory.org. And meanwhile, wishing us all calm and peaceful days ahead. And now, back to our episode. Israel appears to be at a crossroads. Questions of national identity, religion, unity, democracy, the rule of law, the very questions that Israel's founders wrestled with, are all at the forefront. So with that, how do we go about marking the 75th Yom Ma'ut? For months we went back and forth, trying to strike the right chord. After all, we spend our days traveling up and down the country, talking to people, hearing their stories, their fears, their dreams. And of course, we've noticed, long ago, how different the life of a yeshiva boy in Bnei Brak is from that of a Bedouin teacher in Chura. How dissimilar are the Israels of a farmer from Emek Israel, an Arab fisherman from Akko, a high-tech exec from Herzliya, and a nurse from Dimona. And those differences, it seems as if they are just growing that the gaps are simply widening. We fight and we disagree. We call each other names and we hate. We demonstrate and we demonize. So what is it, aside from the fact that we're all physically here, that unites us, that makes us part of this group we call Israelis? To answer that question, we decided to go back to the basics to what was seemingly the first and last time there was some form of national consensus about anything. Our new series is called Signed, Sealed, Delivered, and it looks at our founding moral compass, Megillat Atzmaut, or the Declaration of Independence. On May 14, 1948, 
Eight hours before the end of the British mandate in Palestine, David Ben-Gurion declared the birth of a new state, which in a meeting two days earlier received its name, Israel. The ceremony itself, which took place in the Tel Aviv Museum, the former home of Tel Aviv's first mayor, Meir Dizengoff, was kept secret till the very last minute. But of course, in such a small country, word got out, and masses lined Rothschild Boulevard and the nearby streets. They looked on as members of Mo'etzet Ha'am, the pre-state governing body, and other lucky dignitaries who managed to score a much-coveted invitation entered the building. Everything was done in such haste that the graphic artist, Ute Valish, who had been tasked with designing the scroll of the Declaration of Independence, had only managed to complete a couple of paragraphs of calligraphy. So David Ben-Gurion read most of the text off of a printed piece of paper. And then, after Rabbi Maimon recited the Sheikh Yanu prayer, each member of the provisional government in attendance got up and signed their name at the bottom of the scroll. This didn't stop them. Two days later, at the very first meeting of the Provisional State Council, from voicing many complaints about the text, about what was included, and what was omitted. Now, we began this project long before this most recent and dramatic wave of legislation and protests. And one of the most interesting elements of the resistance to the judicial reform is the resurgent centrality and deep relevance of Megillat Ha'atzma'ut. Suddenly, Megillat Ha'atzma'ut is everywhere. A massive replica was hung on the building of the Tel Aviv municipality. There are bumper stickers and t-shirts that say Ne'emanim le'megilat ha'atzma'ut, loyal to the declaration, and multiple initiatives to get citizens to electronically sign the scroll. For months, we've been trying to get a glimpse of the real Megilat ha'atzma'ut. And it turns out, it isn't a simple task. Megilat ha'atzma'ut is kept at the Israel State Archives, and is taken out of the vault very rarely. We wrote emails, called in favors, pleaded, and then, when we were just about to give up, we were summoned to the archives, though we weren't sure whether that meant our request to see the scroll had been granted. As it happens, the State Archives storage facility is about a three-minute walk from Israel Story's offices in Talpiot in Jerusalem. Looking at the nondescript building from the outside, you'd never in a million years guess that it houses some of the country's most priceless treasures. It looks like a faceless and industrial warehouse. Our producer Mitch Ginsberg and I arrived a few minutes early. Mitch locked his bike to the railing up front, and we entered through a tiny side door, because, well, there didn't seem to be any other visible entrance. We were ushered into a lab that had all kinds of machines and stacked boxes of documents. And there, on a plain plastic table, lay a long, rectangular blue box. And inside it, we suspected, but weren't totally sure, 
was the Holy Grail itself. To be honest, the whole thing looked a bit like a morgue. It's pretty cool with that light, but that would be nice to have it. Like it's, I like the way it's laid out like a cadaver almost. <laughs> Since there were a ton of air conditioners and vents making a lot of noise, we asked if we could relocate to a quieter side room. And then, to our surprise, they not only agreed, but asked us to help schlep the Megillah. Mishy, how does it feel carrying the uh, Declaration of Independence around? It's above my pay grade. I think so as well. <laughs> Don't worry. That was most definitely not the sound of the box with Megillah Tatzmaut falling. It was, instead, us entering the office of Ruti Avramovich the director of the state archives, who carefully moved her cup of tea. <laughs> you know, so as to avoid a national catastrophe. Okay, my name is Ruti Avramovich. I'm the chief uh, archivist. Uh, we are currently at the National Archives, where all the materials are, the historic materials, and lay next to us is the Declaration of Independence of the State of Israel. Is the Declaration the star of the collection? Is it the most prized possession within the, in the archives? Well, yes, I, I think you can say that. If I would have to choose one particular uh, document from the archives, and we have 400 million <laughs> documents in the archives, then I would probably choose uh, this particular item as the most important one that we have. It is kept in a safe, in a very dark room, in a very dark box uh, that um, hopefully will keep it safe um, for eternity. But you know, it's interesting because actually the preservation, given the this is a 75-year-old uh, document. The preservation is is quite amazing. I mean, you know, it looks as if it's... Uh, it was it, yeah, it looks as if it's a relatively new document. I mean, it's true that the, there's some fading in the signatures, but, mm-hmm. um, but the ink of the, uh, of the declaration itself is very strong and vibrant. Mm-hmm. Thank you. We do really our best to preserve and protect the scroll. Oti explained that getting to see the scroll itself is a big deal. You know, it's a very special occasion that you are here in this um, actually very secure building. And to come here and also to see that the, the scroll is a double rare uh, occasion. So really not many people, really. We can count them on fingers. Really? Can. And I can understand if someone will say that this is not the archive's um, possession. It's not the archive's possession. It's not the archive's uh, document. It's the archives of the people of Israel. I agree. It belongs to us all. Uh, I totally agree. We will just have to find the way uh, to present it to as, as many people as, uh, as we can. There are, indeed plans to present it publicly in the future. But Ruti, she's worried about that. Uh, Just because I'm afraid that it might get stolen or something terrible will happen to it because it's a unique document. There is no other. They didn't make two of them. So, Ruti, for me, this is the 
first time, of course, that I'm seeing Megillat Atzmaut, the Declaration of Independence, and it's it's almost a mystical uh, sensation that I have because it's um, something that I've seen images of my entire life, uh, but to see the actual artifact itself is something quite special. Do you, do you recall the first time you saw Megillat Atzmaut? To tell you the truth, the very first time that I saw it, I was a little bit um, disappointed because it's so small. Really? To me it looks large. <laughs> it's Maybe it's long, but uh, it's quite small, quite humble. And although it's um, small to me, uh, its content is very powerful. Just to think that it took them only three weeks to write. I think of documents that we write these days, and it takes us sometimes months, really months. And to think that uh, this very important document took them only three weeks and four sessions, and that's it. Uh, that's amazed me, and I think it tells me how much we are different than the people we used to be. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. And now, back to our episode. Later on in the series, we'll have a piece devoted to the various different drafts of the Declaration, and the unlikely story of how the final text came to be. We'll talk about the battles between a religious statement and a human rights-based secular one, about the compromises that were made, and the two most significant words that were left out of the document, God and democracy. But for now, just think about it a second. The British are about to leave the country. The future is entirely unknown. The violent clashes of what will later be known as the War of Independence are escalating. By the end of the war, 1% of the Jewish population will have been killed. And here, within three weeks and a few short sessions, a very diverse group of Jews somehow agree on a text that will serve as the foundational document of the new state. The scroll is uh, three parts combined together, right? Uh, you can see the stitches. Ben-Gurion signed first, but then it was the alphabetic uh, order, you see? 37 members of Mo'etze Ta'am, the provisional legislative body of the Yeshuv, signed Megillat Ha'atzma'ut. 25 of the signatories were present at the May 14th ceremony in Tel Aviv. 11 were stuck in besieged Jerusalem and added their signatures later. In one, Rabbi Yitzchak Meir Levin was in the States at the time, and signed upon his return. There were no Arabs, or for that matter no non-Jews, who signed Megillat Ha'atzma'ut. We'll address that lacuna in a special installment of the series. But the group that did sign the document represented many factions of the Jewish population. 
There were revisionists and Labour Party operatives. There were communists and socialists and capitalists. Kibbutznikim, moshavnikim, and city folk. Haredi rabbis and atheists. 35 men and 2 women. 35 Ashkenazim, mainly Russians and Poles. And 2 Mizrahim, one Sfaradi and one Yemenite. There were 22 who were born in the 19th century and 3 that were under 40. There was a single signatory who had been born in the land of Israel and one whose mother tongue was Hebrew. Over the past several months, our team has diligently tracked down the closest living relative of each one of these signatories. Fourteen of the 37 have children who are still alive. All the rest have grandchildren, or great-grandchildren, or nieces and nephews. And we traverse the country, book studios around the world, and one by one, we interviewed them. We talked about their ancestors and families about the promise of the Declaration, the places in which we delivered on that promise, the places in which we exceeded our wildest dreams, and also about the places where we fell short. At the outset, we didn't know who these descendants would be, or what they would believe. Would they think like their forebears? Or had they forged their own, perhaps even opposite, ideological paths? Did they live in Israel? And if not, why? We were curious to see if they'd be more, or rather less, representative of Israeli society than the original group of signatories. And whether, knowing what they know about Israel today, they would have signed the declaration themselves. The result, which we'll bring you over the next couple of months, is in certain ways a sociological study. But it's also an intensely intimate document. People remembering their parents, their grandparents, their uncles. You know, it's easy to forget just how young a country Israel is. True, none of the 37 men and women who signed Megillat Atzmaut are still alive. The last one, Meir Vilner, died in 2003. But compared to the States, for instance, where all the signatories of the American Declaration of Independence have long ago moved into the realm of historical figures, here there's a sense that we can still touch our founding fathers and mothers. We can still get a first-hand sense of who they were as people, at home, with their family. And it is through these descendants of the men and women who, with the strike of a pen, gave birth to this country of ours, that we wish to learn something about ourselves. So the last question that I'll ask you, Oti, is just, um, what does it make you feel to, to be so close? I mean, we can, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do it, but we could really touch it right now with our fingers. Uh, what, what does it make you feel? The answer is very short. It makes me feel like wanting every, every citizen, every child in Israel to read this document and to really understand what it says. It says everything about who we are and who we want to be. Um, It's been saying it for 75 years now, but not many of us ever read this document. And I think that if many people 
Hopefully all of us will read this document. Um, we will understand a little bit more and a little bit better about who we are without anyone telling us who we should be. That's it. The episodes of this series are going to be different than our usual brand of human interest storytelling. To begin with, they're much shorter and aren't exactly stories in the normal Israel story style, but rather a collection of short portraits and edited interviews. Israel's story, of course, isn't going anywhere. Our normal episodes will pick up again after the series, and we have many wonderful tales in store. But in honor of the 75th anniversary, and in light of the dramatic times we're experiencing here in Israel, we're going to devote the coming weeks to the descendants of the signers of Migilat Atzmaut. Each descendant will receive their own mini-sode, that together, we hope, will form a mosaic of who we were, who we are, and who we wish to be. We hope you join us. Shalom, shalom, and yalla bye. <laughs>
Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, hey. 